Welcome to Business Line Podcasts. In this interview, Thomas K. Thomas of Business Line and I, Vinay Kamat, have a conversation with Mr. T.V. Narendran, CEO and Managing Director of Tata Steel. So we begin by asking him, how did he transition Tata Steel from a typical old economy company to a digital-led company? So I think there, that's a typical change management challenge, right? So at least my own experience in Tata Steel, growing up in Tata Steel plus what I found effective, there are multiple things you need to do. Right? First, you need to be clear what you want to try. It should not be the flavor of the month approach. Today I've read a book, so I think, oh, let's do this. Tomorrow I read another book and I say, let's do this. You have to think through, you have to say that, okay. To me, anything that you pick has to be a three to five year program. You know, it's not something that, and you have to get at it, keep at it. To me, if you drive that well for three to five years, it becomes a way we work. Then it's no longer a change program. It is embedded well, that becomes the way you work. Right? So whether it was sustainability, whether it was digital, whether it's agility now, there are multiple things that you do. Okay, so let's let me pick digital, which has been a great journey for us. Firstly, you need to pick the right resources. You know, and I had an opportunity at that time because our then CIO was retiring, who was a typical Tata Steel person who grown up in Tata Steel. Whereas I realized for something like this, you needed a little bit more outside in perspective. Because uh, Tata Steel may be very good in many things. But ideally, you need on, when you're driving digital transformation, you need somebody who has seen the world on it. And so I remember talking to Chandra and then, we identified Jayanto, who's in TCS, mm. who had handled metals and mining for TCS globally. And we then I spoke to him, he suggested his name, I met him, spoke to him, got him on board, right? That to me was a very important point because Jayanto came with a very different, uh, you know, he had seen the world. So he came and knew where exactly the gaps were, right? So, so to me, having the right resources are very important. Secondly, I should, as a CEO, I should believe in it. I should back him, I should understand the subject, etc. Not just me, the top leadership should understand it. So we arranged a lot of, uh, and many of our operating guys had not been exposed so much to what was happening. So we sent them around the world. They went and saw, not just steel industry, other companies, other industries. They went to the Bay Area, they went to London, they went, some of them went to Berlin, some went to Paris, wherever. They were good examples of organizations who used digital to transform themselves. They went and saw. So they came back with a lot of appreciation of what is possible. Then we did a lot of stuff bottom-up because it's not just a top-down thing, right? So we ran a lot of programs at the shop floor level, explaining to them technologies and asking them for ideas. So many wonderful ideas came up from the shop floor, right? The guy on the shop floor who had to walk 200 meters to the control room to check the temperature on the furnace could just point his camera at the furnace and get the temperature, mm. right? In our pipe tubes division, one of the early ideas was they used to load these pipes, tubes, in bundles in a truck. Then they had to count the number of tubes. So there was one guy of the transporter who would put a straw, then count. The whole process of loading the truck was short. But getting the truck out of the gate used to take many hours because of all this. Because it was sold on piece. So you needed to know how many pieces were there. You had an app, uh, you just take a photograph and it's, you know how many pipes are there. Right? So, suddenly people saw, because otherwise the fear was, oh, digital means I lose my job. So, they started seeing as digital as a way to make the job easier. More efficient. So, they, more convenient. So, the unions bought into it, right? Then we had uh, a reverse mentoring program, where we said, we ran a reverse mentoring. So, we said, okay, people below 30, 
you can volunteer to mentor the senior guys, including me, the top 30 people in the company. So some 250 people applied. Some 30 were selected. Now two things happened. One is, so the idea was, you sit with them, so I, and two or three mentors over a period of time, you ask them questions, which you did like those days, I remember the first mentor I had, I was having a chat with him on augmented reality and virtual reality and how we can use it in Tata Steel. So he had a lot of, he was in some part of, he was in marketing and sales, I think, but he, because the youngsters knew it much better, then he would come back, tell me you can do. Similarly, all my senior colleagues were having these mentors with whom they were having this conversation. Now, the other advantage of it is our engagement scores were lowest for people below 30. This was also a way for us to connect with them. You know, then we expanded this program so that the top 100, 150 leaders, then we set goals. We said you need a 2 billion cost takeout. So it was not just about, okay, nice thing to do. There were goals, then there were projects identified. There was a way of tracking how those projects were moving. And then a lot of training and a lot of... Then, of course, Jainto came with the infrastructure plan. Because we weren't telling our minds, let's do digital. And they said, I don't have Wi-Fi connectivity. Yeah. You know, so let's get started there. So we spent over a period of time, uh, I think 100, 150 million dollars just building the infrastructure. So that you could do what you wanted to do. So it was a multi-year uh, program. Now what happened is, so there was a point in time when people were saying, are we spending too much money on this? Because other capital projects were being squeezed and digital, we were just saying, go ahead. And then COVID happened. And we could just shift overnight to work from home because the infrastructure was there. Because we started this journey in 2016. So uh, 2019, 2020 or 2017, we started spending on, by 2020, our infrastructure was in place. So what do you mean by infrastructure? Small things like Wi-Fi connectivity in all places. Okay. Secondly, even simple things like laptops, iPads. Earlier, we had a big backlog, desktop. You know, we had a lot of bureaucracy in Tata Steel, which did not help you. So anyone could connect. Like we could work from home and run the business without a problem. Because connectivity was there. Everyone had the gadgets and devices. Not everyone was stuck with desktops. You know, people had that flexibility. And Wi-Fi itself, a very simple thing. If, I mean, I can be sitting in Normandy or Joda or West Pokaro or somewhere. It's not about the big city. So, all those things. And then, also, we had done a lot of work. I mean, this is from the COVID point of view. But by which time, we'd done a lot of work on sensorization so that a lot more data was collected. We moved into the cloud. That was a huge, one of the biggest movements uh, to cloud for a large enterprise like this, which helped us scale up very quickly. So, multiple things, uh, and even, uh, of course, with Microsoft Teams, is that then anyone could operate from anywhere. That uh, shift, and then uh, like this, RFID cards. So, we had a lot of data coming in, and where is social distancing not being followed? That was also part of that tech grade. Anybody, any worker coming into Tata Steel had an RFID card with a thing. So, you knew exactly uh, where they were, what were they doing, how do you control how many people are coming in. Have you been able to take out $2 billion in costs that you were planning to? Largely, yes. So it's an ongoing program. Uh, so I think we've taken out at least $1.5 billion so far. Yeah. So huge. And now we are moving into a very different, uh, of course, now AI is another uh, thing. But now we are moving more and more into operating plants remotely. Now the control rooms are not where the plant is. The control rooms are somewhere else. So today we have control rooms to operate our mines in Jamshedpur. Right. You know, mines are being operated. Now, all this is very important because today we struggle to get good talent because nobody wants to go and stay in some of these places. So tomorrow you can locate a lot of talent anywhere. Don't need to be sitting close to the plant. 
right? We have, I think, one of the most flexible policies for large companies. We can work from home, work from work from anywhere is limited to specific jobs. But uh, all teams can decide whether they work from home or work from the office. They have measured on their outcomes. Their team can decide the cadence that you come once a week to the office, twice a week, whatever. People are able to do that. So we are allowed, which allows us when we, uh, you know, in bigger cities like this, people save on travel time. Otherwise, we are also able to get a diverse mix and attract uh, more women than before because we offer all this flexibility. A uh, lot more working couples because uh, that also, so a number of things there are. So while what starts as a digital journey becomes... Uh, manifests itself. Similarly, sustainability. When we started that journey, I think 2014-15, uh, earlier we used to send one or two people every year to the Cambridge Institute of Sustainability for training. We got them here. We started with our board and the top 30-40 leaders. Then we did the top 300-400 leaders of Tata Steel on sustainability because it's an existential issue. People should understand, including all the union leaders. They went through this Cambridge uh, program. Then they understood. So when you talk sustainability and the need to do this and that, they relate to it. It's not some management jargon which... Uh, because ultimately, people will accept something if they see its relevance to their day-to-day -day life, whether it's digital or sustainability. Yeah, they become somebody's kind of, uh, what do you call that, buzzword. Up in the air ideas. Up in the air ideas, you listen and then you go back and say out. But you should be able to explain how. So if the guy in the blast furnace knows the impact of his co-create on the CO2 uh, emission of Tata Steel, he's far more conscious about it. It's not some uh, high IQ subject which is there, out there, which a worker says is not relevant to me. So I think any change you need to explain why it's important, set some goals which you can chase. It's not just about uh, a nice thing to do. Build the resources, both people-wise as well as infrastructure-wise. Put in those resources, make those commitments, walk the talk, train people, get people bottom-up involved, and eventually it becomes the way you work, right? Then it has a momentum of its own. So you've been a lifer in Tata Steel. You've been pretty much part of the system. So how did you get the ideas to stoke the change in Tata Steel? Did you have someone advise you or did you have an outside view in on the company? No, I think obviously... All of us read books, go visit, listen to people. For me, uh, some of the triggers have been fairly regular to Davos, for instance, though it's criticized a lot. But I find those two, three days as an opportunity for me to just listen. Very stimulating. Just go there and hear what is the world talking about. And honestly, sustainability, digital, etc. came to me from there. At a time when we were not even talking about it. I'm talking about 2013, 14 or 14 or 15 when I just become. And we were so consumed. So, you know, you will always be consumed by. At that time I was consumed by. Mines are closed. I know from Australia, China is dumping. Yes. But what are they? As you do your firefighting and do what you have to do to survive today. What are the seeds you want to plant today? And you have to, in companies like this. You have to keep planting seeds because these are multi-generation companies, you know. So you have to really look at, okay, ten years. what are the problems 10 years from now, 15 years from now? And what are the seeds you need to plant today to deal with that? So to me, it was clear that sustainability is a big issue. And steel is a hard to abate sector. Then I started reading about it and then I understood that you, there's no escaping it. You have to, And then, of course, a footprint in Europe helped because in Europe, the regulatory environment was changing very rapidly. The same on digital. I mean, so many uh, companies are doing so many things. 
and of course uh, it also helped then uh, to have a chat with Chandra and he understands the subject and of course he was looking at it more from a tech point of view but I was looking at it more from a industrial point of view but he fully uh, he was very supportive in fact he was happy that Tata Steel was willing to jump on this journey because that it's not just the tech companies who were in that journey and uh, of course from Tata Steel point of view you know World Economic Forum has this they call them digital lighthouses you know they recognize manufacturing sites the first steel company site in the world was a plant in Aymodel you know which is 100 years old in India the first site was Kalinganagar our newest plant and the second site was Jamshipur right so we are the only steel company in the world with three sites who are uh, recognized as uh, lighthouses uh, uh, by World Economic Forum and of these three sites, two sites are 100 years old. And one site is uh, five years old or 10 years old, depending on where you, when you start counting. So the point is, whether you're old or new, you can transform. And, and it's important. So I think some of these you pick up from what you re read, what you hear. And I think as I always feel, you have to always be a student. You have to always uh, learn, listen, pick up what's happening. What are the big things which are happening? And they think about it. Not like I said, it's not that you hear one thing and then because see, also we are a large complex company. Changing course. You can't kind of keep throwing. That's why I said anything. Then first, I have to assess that. Is it minimum three to five year commitment that I'm willing to make? Is it important enough to do that and get everybody on board? Then you run with it. So whatever you pick needs to. Let's say safety is one journey which started before my time, but. I used to be the vice president in charge of safety, amongst other things, before becoming the MD, and I knew that that's a journey which is a big culture change. So that was anyway on my plate. Cost efficiency has always been Tata Steel's thing. But after 2013, what was clear to us was by 2030, uh, our mines will go up for auction. So we have time till 2030 to drive. So we have what we launched, a Shikar 25. Shikar means mountain and 25 is 25% 25 EBITDA margin with raw materials at market prices. That's a goal. So that 2030 onwards, if you have to buy and or also minimum 25% EBITDA. So it's a multi-year program. And digital also in some sense helps towards that cost efficiency. Then we did digital. We did sustainability. More recently, uh, we've done uh, agility. So these are the big, uh, and we are doing stuff. We also put in other multi-year programs. One is on technology and R&D. Because for an organization who's been around 100 years, we feel that we are punching below our, we ask ourselves, are we seen as a global technology leader? Uh, I don't think so. You know, So you would think of, Arshal or Mittal or a Nippon Steel or a POSCO. So that's, we've set ourselves a goal and we need to get there. And I think we are. Uh, so R&D spends are going on? Not only R&D spends, again, it's a build, building the talent pool, picking the product. See, because honestly, the first question was R&D spend. So I told the R&D guys, give me the project, I'll give you the money. So it's not that uh, somebody came to me with the R&D project and we said we can't fund it. But what are those first in the world ideas? that you need funding for. But that those first in the world ideas don't come just like that. You need to do a lot of work. So it's building that, I think, it's let's say it starts with patents. And I think we've had uh, more patents in the last five, six, seven years than we've had in our life. What, what products? Products, uh, steel, basically for steel, largely for steel, steel applications, various steel applications, new products, then uh, innovation. See, Tata Steel has always been very strong on Continuous improvement. That TQM culture, you know, which Dr. Rani built in the 90s. Breakthrough innovation, not so much. And the world was moving more and more towards breakthrough out of the box. So we've done a lot of work on innovation. Today, within the Tata group, like Jeff Ising says back, we are hardly getting any awards. We have a Tata Innovista, the Tata group innovation program where you... But for the last three or four years, 30% of the awards come to Tata Steel. Okay, so, so when you say R&D, it starts with having that innovation culture, breakthrough thinking... Hang the resources, identifying the projects, building the partnerships, 
whether it's uh, CSIR labs, whether it was global academic uh, academia, picking areas where you need to work. So once you do all that, then you start doing, uh, and we said, okay, what is first for ta- first in Tata, first time in Tata Steel kind of projects? What is first time in India kind of projects? And what is first time in the world kind of projects? And then we have a, we have, and we've identified these technology leadership areas, like on hydrogen, you know, on circularity, on water, on beneficiation of low quality raw materials. So we identified six or seven technology leadership areas where it is co-chaired not only by the R&D head, but by the business head. Because the business, again, in all this, whether it's digital R&D technology, if you wanted to be successful, the business has to own it. If the digital transformation was the CIO's job, you will not have the success you want. If the R&D technology journey is the R&D guy's job, you will not have that success. So the businesses have to take ownership. Business have to take ownership. Even for R&D technology, it's not about doing a project for intellectual stimulation. It's about doing a project which is of relevance to the business. Either in terms of cost or in terms of customer or product or whatever. You know, it's not a, we are not an academic institution to just do research. Right? So I think that Picking those few areas, so at a larger level, what we said is, Tata Steel has to be culturally, structurally, and financially future ready, right? Structurally future ready is a little bit more leadership calls, board calls, what should be a portfolio like, and that hence the decision to grow in India, because India business is the most profitable part. How can the India business be a bigger share of the overall business? I mean, when we acquired Chorus, uh, India was 20% of the overall business. Today, India is 60% of the overall business, right? How can we, uh, you become 80%, it'll keep growing. Even if the, and UK, which was being our most challenging overseas footprint, at one time was 40% of our business. Today, it is 10%, right? So that's how structurally you're stronger. And if you're structurally stronger, and of course, culturally stronger, then your performance numbers, and financially, you become also like bringing down our debt and making our balance sheet more healthy. It's all part of that. Then you're ready because my point is 2030 onwards, the cost advantages that Tata Steel has had for a lot of 100 years on iron ore, you will not have. So the organization should be strong enough to be with that. And I think we are, uh, you know, moving in that direction. So what is the way out for you to resolve the problems that you have with Tata Steel UK? No, we honestly thought that would be a good way, not only for us, but for the European steel industry. Mm-hmm. You know, because end of the day, the industry is still consolidating and scaling up. Just as an example, Bow Steel, the biggest steel company in the world, is today 130, 140 million, which is more than India, who is the second largest producer of steel. So that's a scale which China is building. They want at least one or two companies in that 100 to 200 million Bow Steel will become 200 million tons, even before India becomes 200 million tons. Okay, now that's a scale you're talking about. So if you're some 10 million tons in Europe, how do you compete? So hence we felt that this in uh, Tata Steel, because Aslan Mittal is some 30, 40 million in Europe. If we come together, we have 20 million. Then you have an industry which is a bit stronger. Tata Steel is anyway there. So, you know, but of course, competition com- uh, commission thought otherwise, some of their customers, auto customers, packaging customers, well, no, no, power, etc. So, fine. That's uh, their call. So, we tried. But at some point in time, management was also getting distracted because constantly, are you selling? Are you merging? Are you closing? You know, then people are not focused on what they are supposed to do. And then that's why once this didn't happen, SSAB, we SSAB had reached out to us. We tried for whatever reason it didn't happen. He said, "Let's now just focus on getting the performance." And one of the things we said is we need to do away with Tata Steel Europe as a 
level, let's split it into terrace UK and terrace Netherlands. That sharpens the focus because, you know, honestly, Netherlands has been a strong performer, has never required support from India, has in fact paid dividends to India. So there's no require, whereas everyone gets Tata Steel Europe, you know, and the Dutch team gets demotivated, saying that they're one of the best performing steel plants in Europe. Uh, of course, last six months we've had issues because of various things, more contextual. But otherwise, fundamentally, it's one of the uh, structurally stronger steel plants. In UK, we have a problem. So UK over the last, even before my time, we started shrinking. And during my time also, we have shrunk. Now we are down, we were 10 million, we are down to 3 million. At the same time, India has grown. So that's why it's like, today, UK is 3 million out of 33 million for Tata Steel. Whereas earlier, UK is 10 million out of 24 million for Tata Steel. And Tata Steel India was early 4-5 million. Today, Tata Steel India is 20 million. And going to become 25 million, right? So, hence, earlier when UK did badly, whole of Tata Steel did badly. Today... Uh, yes, it impacts our resilience material enough, but it's not. So we are still doing stuff in Europe. In I think Netherlands is more about transitioning into a greener future. The challenge is different. Uh, UK is also about that, but UK is also about surviving today and uh, having some support for the transition. Is the UK government offering support? They've offered some support, but honestly, that's not enough. We need to review that. And uh, the clock is ticking in the UK simply because Many of those assets are coming to the end of life in the next year or two. So you cannot, status quo is not an option. So I think that's the thing. So I think one way or the other, we'll be taking some calls. How many employees do you have there? About 8,000 in UK and about 11,000 in Netherlands. When I say Netherlands, the whole, because we have distribution centers. And all that. Is there a real danger that you may end up shuttering the plant? Let's see. Let's see. We are... Uh, Discussing all options, particularly, I mean, just now we're talking UK. In UK also, there is a process that we have to follow. Anything that we do, we need to have a consultation process with the union. We have to discuss with them what are the options. They have to be convinced that we've exhausted all options. Then only we can take all view. But everyone knows the situation that we are in. And I think Tata Steel has supported the business very significantly for the last 10, 15 years. So it's nobody can fault us for not supporting so far. But obviously, all these are very complex uh, discussions and decisions. So we are going through that. But I think, uh, let's see where it takes us. Are you on course to doubling capacity? We have drawn of the plans. We will obviously allocate capital based on, you know, how the year plays out and we'll discuss with the board and various other things. But broadly, the plan is we are already on track for 25 million tons, which is the Kalinganagar expansion, which is getting completed. by is Indian operation. That's Indian operation. When we say doubling, it was basically doubling Indian operation. Right? Europe stays at 10 million. So India, which we pretty much doubled in the last 10 years, mainly through organic, I mean, uh, through inorganic growth, now will be through organic. So basically, the plan is Kalinganagar, which we are at 3 million, will go to 8 million which is already being executed. We have plans to take that 8 to 13 by 2030. Okay? Uh, 8 million to 13 million. The Bhushan plant, which we acquired, when we acquired it was 3, it's operating at 5. Uh, we'll take it to 6.5 million. Okay? Let's say if we leave it at 6.5 in 2030, we have an option to take it to 10. But even if I say 6.5 is realistic by 2030. If I look at the Nilachal plant, which we acquired at 1 million tons, we already developing the plans to take it to 5 million. When we start acquired the plant, it was being shut for 3 years. It's now producing at 1 million level. can take it to 5 million and eventually 10. But even if I take 5 million of that. And Jamshedpur is at 11. So you already have 11 plus 13 in Kalinganagar, 24. 6.5 in Bhushan, which is 
and 5 in Nilachal, which is 35.5. Then we are setting up this uh, electric car furnace-based operation in Ludhiana, okay. which is more recycling-based. That's a 0.75 million. So that takes us to 36 plus. If this model is successful and uh, by 20, in the next two years, this plant will be operational, then we want to actually replicate this everywhere. So the 36 to 40 million can either be bridged by putting more... Replicate this electric car. Electric car furnace. So the thinking is for north, west and south, we will uh, add steel capacity through the recycling route because the CO2 footprint is much smaller. And east we will produce using iron ore and coal. Right? So the 36 million to 40 million, we have all these options. Either you expand in further in Kalinganagar or further in Ilachal or further in Bhushan or add these EFs. The recycling of steel that you'll be doing from the elliptic arc furnaces, will there be from steel scrap? Yeah. So we already set up. Uh, so this is another big thing. This part of our sustainability drive, right? So we said, how can we embed circularity more in our value chain? You know, because we are typically a linear value chain, iron or coal to steel. We set up uh, scrap processing. In India, scrap processing is very unorganized. So we set up the first unit in Rotak, uh, which was commissioned during COVID. Actually, it got delayed because of COVID. We started building the plant before. And it's a half a million ton plant. Then get enough feedstock. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So we picked the location close to industrial area. So all the auto companies, all of that. Rotak is in Haryana. Then we looked at at Haryana and Punjab. Punjab gave us a better deal. So we're setting up the steel plant in Punjab. So this Rotak plant will feed a lot of scrap. Plus we will collect scrap. Uh, so, when you make steel by recycling, by melting scrap, there's no coal, right? I mean, I'm leaving out power for now. Uh, even if the power is thermal power, the carbon that you emit when you make steel through recycling is 0.5 to 0.6 tons of carbon per ton of steel. Compared to? 2.1, 2.0. In Jamshedpur is the best in India, 2.1. I'm more than a Dutch plant is one of the best in the world at 1.8. Okay, so you're at 30% of that footprint. In Ludhiana lot of the energy source will be green. So it's coming down to less than 0.3. Okay. Uh, so if that model works, I mean, otherwise, and of course, this is without any carbon price. Once you have a carbon price in India, then you have, like in Europe, we pay you carbon 80 tax. euros, carbon tax. We pay 80 euros per ton of carbon that we emit in addition, I mean, in excess of the free allowances. So, but you're okay with that. In Europe, we don't have a choice. Here, there is no such thing, but eventually, I'm sure there will be some sort of incentive or disincentive. So, that's why in anticipation... So electric arc furnace, it cannot be powered by solar and all, right? Can so, the problem with uh, renewables is, see, the supply is not steady. So not you need storage. So, you don't have... So, you can't have 100% unless you have some pump storage or you don't have battery technology, which is... Uh, because the requirement, see... In a steel plant, the requirement is not steady. So, if the supply is not steady, then you uh, have a, a steady as in you should be able to deal with the spikes also. So, that's why you, you can substitute some of the power. But you cannot have 100%, you know, unless uh, you have alternate technologies. There are many thinking, I mean, there's a thinking around SMRs, which is small modular reactors, nuclear reactors, which is 300 to 500 megawatts. That can be good for a steel plant, which is green, you know. So, this is part of the challenge of greening steel. Like Sweden is, there's an H2 green steel, etc. making green steel. There, the power source is hydro. So, power source is hydro, then you're fine. Yeah. Then you can feed the steel plant you have available all the time. 
But if it is solar and wind, then you don't have that kind of. Thing. So this nuclear option is not for India, right? Not just now, yeah. but there's a eventually all this will be part of the solution. Even for, no, for India also. I mean, a nuclear option is an option for India, but not today. A lot of work is going on. The Indian government is also looking at how can private sector be more involved in this. Uh, nuclear SMRs are there. Like in US, Nucor is already tied up with somebody to uh, have a nuclear power plant close to it. See, these are small modular reactors. So these are things which are being explored. How is steel consumption shaping up in India? I think uh, at the least, I expect consumption to grow at the same rate as the GDP growth rate. But ideally, and I think that will happen, it should be at a higher rate than GDP growth rate. Because, see, India has traditionally had consumption-led growth, which is not so steel-intensive as investment-led growth. With a focus on infrastructure, like in all other developing countries, steel consumption should actually grow at a higher rate than GDP growth rate. You look at China, you look at Vietnam, whichever country has built infrastructure. Like China, when GDP was growing at 10%, steel consumption was growing at 15%. Vietnam steel consumption was growing at 15-20% when GDP was growing at 8-10%, you know. Whereas in India, GDP is 7, steel consumption has been 5, you know, uh, because we've been more consumption. But now if you see, steel consumption is caught up with GDP, if not ahead of GDP. And so, so I expect uh, steel consumption, and if India's steel consumption, let's say, grows at 7% a year, you're talking of 8-9 uh, million tons of consumption growing every year. China has come down, right? Because the entire economy has been... Stuck. China's uh, kind of stuck at that 900 to 1 billion level. They've not... Maybe five years back, people were saying China's steel consumption will come down from 800 million to 600. Honestly, it went from 800 to 1 billion. Because uh, they're still building infrastructure in the interiors, you know, and even if you look at the auto industry in China's, what we sell in a year, they sell in a month. Hmm. You know, so the scale is uh, very different. And and also, as you build renewables, the steel you will consume in a windmill is more for a megawatt of power. It's more than the steel you will consume in a thermal power plant. Right? So, as you shift to renewables, as you build new infrastructure, you will consume steel. So, steel consumption will continue to grow. I mean, the expectation is the 1.8 billion tons of steel consumption today will become 2.8 by 2050. Is China pushing for cheaper steel in the market? Not so much. They are, of course, just now exporting, but not uh, as much as they used to, you know, at the peak, they were exporting 10 million tons a month. The highest they've reached in the last few months is 8 million, but now it is again dropping. If they export 5, 6 million, I think the world can deal with it. If they start exporting 8, 10 million tons, then we have a problem. Because they've been, uh, obviously, Chinese steel industry, while it has grown big in scale, has never been very profitable. So if you look at the market cap of Bow Steel, who is their market cap is some twenty-five billion dollars. And all the opaque structures. Yeah. So right? they're not profitable. They probably I bid the margins of Chinese steel companies typically are less than five percent. So which is not sustainable. Huh? All state funded, I suppose. Correct. Supported. So that's why when people say China is competitive, I differ because just because somebody sells steel cheap doesn't mean they're competitive. They make money at that price and it's fine. They don't make money. I mean, today, if Tata Steel or any steel company in India and the private sector has to make 5% EBITDA margin, you will not be able to survive. Because you can't uh, invest, you can't grow, you can't, uh, don't want to have the cash flows. You need at least 15-20% EBITDA margin. So, that's the point. You know. uh, Mr. Narendran, you've been a lifer in Tata Steel and you joined State Road of IM Calcutta. How come you joined a steel company where perhaps your classmates were joining consumer goods companies and banks and such like? That's a question I've asked myself. Uh, 
luckily uh, luckily or unluckily those days were not so many choices you know choices was the attractive jobs were consumer marketing consulting was not there in fact at that time no international consultants you had a ferguson and all that it companies had just started this is over 87 right? 88 88 88 and uh, banking had started but more retail banking cb bank and all used to come more for retail banking hardly any investment banking kind of roles etc uh for some reason i was always interested in something which had to do with engineering you know for whatever reason not that i was a great engineer or anything but just i was a you spend four years learning and engineering and so on and then honestly not too many jobs tarasil was an exception those are the days of mr rusi modi yeah so and mr modi had somebody called mr aditya kashyap who was working with him uh and aditya kashyap was from iim calcutta so he said we need to recruit uh, people from the mba schools uh, as i said in the tara group typically the tas went to mba schools and recruited uh, tara sil went to the engineering colleges and recruited but uh, mr kashyap because actually they had wanted to set up an international business is that and they also wanted to change the way marketing and sales was done in tara sil so they wanted to so from 1986 they started coming and recruiting two to four people from campus and the tara sil features the most flamboyant pitch at that time they were Mr Modi used to come there's that you know it was very fancy and they should pay reasonably well by those standards by those days so and uh, you know so my seniors who joined them were quite happy so i joined and honestly i didn't think i would stay for the rest of my life there but uh, but it's i think the company has kept me engaged because they every 2 3 years you had new challenges new areas to work join us I joined as a management trainee. I was in Jamshedpur, so you typically have a one-year induction training program. So did that. Towards the end of it, uh, I got picked to join what was then called the international business, which was just about getting started. Exports in India was being encouraged, you know, in the late eighties. Tata Steel wanted to export also, uh, in anticipation of the steel industry opening up. So it so it was a young team, uh, two of. Uh, uh, in fact two of my classmates and me three of us and plus few younger people and uh, under the leader then called mr aina then it was asked to set up so it was a very exciting area because we were like huge growth we were doubling our business every year and uh, so i joined that then i was there for i joined in 89 then 92 3 years later i was told would you like to go to dubai we were setting up our business there so i went there i was there for 5 years setting up a business in the middle east it gave me a good only distribution uh yeah sales and distribution we were also trading we were bringing in steel from uh, eastern europe turkey into the middle east so whole bunch of stuff so it was interesting uh but after 4 5 years i was getting a bit uh, bored uh because there was and we at tata steel was also changing its product mix so every year there was something different so i wanted to come back to our domestic business because that was much bigger exports was always 15% So I spoke to one of our seniors at that time, and then I joined the domestic business in '97. Came back, and uh, then I was there uh, till uh, 2003 in different roles. Then I worked with Mr. Mutraman in Jamshedpur. He was then the CEO in his office. We have a chief of staff kind of role, which gives you a great exposure to the old organization. Then, when I was in his office, we started the global, uh, you know. Uh, thing Mr. Mutraman was driving growth internationally 
we looked at various things and the first acquisition was Nat Steel in Singapore. Then I went there in 2005. I worked there for five years. That was a great uh, experience as well. Oh, which was the acquisition? Nat Steel. Nat Steel is Yeah. Nat Steel was in 2005. What was what is called Tata Steel Thailand, then called Millennium Steel was 2006. How is that doing now? That's fine. The Southeast Asian assets were self-sufficient. They were never created problems, did not contribute so much, it took care of it. Yeah. And then uh, 2007, we acquired Chorus. So, Nat Steel was the first one. So, a lot of learning for Tata Steel and for me, cultural, you know, because I went there, the CEO, we kept the CEO of Nat Steel, Mr. Usuni, I worked with him for two and a half years before I took over from him. So, a uh, lot of cultural issues. And Nat Steel had a footprint all over Southeast Asia, including in China. Two plants in China, Vietnam, Philippines, something in Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand. So, it was great experience for me. Learned a lot. Then, 2010, I came back to Jamshedpur as uh, Vice President for Flat Products. Because I was largely in the long product side. And uh, then, for three years, safety and flat products and long products also. And then... 2013 so so did you know at any point of time that you would eventually head the company or were you fast tracked or no I mean multiple see you always get some signal or the other not that you will become the MD of the company but at least the company uh, thinks of you right I mean so whether, whether it's for the management programs that you get selected to go then in 2001 in the last year of Dr. Rani's tenure he did a huge transformation of the structure of Tata Steel we had some 14, 15 levels, very hierarchical, bureaucratic. So there was something called a performance ethic program where the whole thing was done away with. And about 110 people were picked as a top uh, 110 people in the company. Uh, and I was one of them. And a lot of youngsters, not just me, but at least 20 people in the 30s were in that 120. And I was 36 at that time. So that was your first signal that, okay, you're seen as one of the guys with potential. Then when Mr. Mutraman picked me uh, as his chief of staff, that was also a signal that, yeah, okay, uh, they see some potential. So I guess you get those signals. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Business Line Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this conversation.